So why don't we begin with a scripture reading out of 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 5 through 9. So if you could stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is The Reformation and Self-Government. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for this time to remember the Reformation and the reform that it brought was so needed. The state of the church had crumbled to such an awful state. We thank you for the repentance that was seen there, for the repair that took place to your kingdom and to the body of Christ at large and teaching and thinking and all that went with it, O Lord. And Lord, as we look at this aspect of the impact of the Reformation upon self-government, the impact upon the individual themselves. Lord, I just ask that you'd give me the unction and words to speak, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Could be seated. I actually want to begin this sermon by telling you what I am not speaking of when I speak of self-government. There's a movement and belief out there among men, mostly younger men, these days which has even brought in converts from Christianity. It believes that the three great governments can be done away with and that self-government is all that is needed. Let me assure you, I am not a disciple of such nonsense, nor do I promote such ideas. If you want to embrace the idea that you can do away with the other three great governments and reduce government to just one, namely self-government, you are embracing an absurdity. First, it is an absurdity because the other three great governments were meant by God to produce within the individual self-government. In other words, you will not obtain proper self-government within the individual unless these three governments establish it within the individual. That is why these three great governments must be run properly ruled by the law and word of God, and abuses within any of these three great governments, family, church, or civil, must be rebuked, repaired, and reformed. You do not do away with these three governments when they are doing wrong. Rather, you call them to account in the sight of God. You do not pretend the positions of authority within each of these governments have to prove they possess authority. They possess it ontologically. A father is a father. An elder is an elder. A mayor is a mayor. 
If any in any position of authority in these governments abuses their authority, one of the things we appeal to in order to end their abuses is their authority. All three of these great governments were established by God, created by God, ordained by God, instituted by God, and regulated by God. In other words, each has its own role, function, and limitations. The second reason, thinking you can do away with the other three great governments and reduce it to just one, namely self-government, and it doesn't matter if you call this thinking radical libertarianism, volunteerism, or Christian anarchy, or whatever else, The second reason, thinking you can do away with the other three great governments and reduce it to just one, namely self-government, the reason is such an absurdity is because of the nature of man. That's the second reason. Because of the nature of man. Man is wicked. Desperately wicked. This is the testimony of Scripture. And it is correct. The idea that man is basically good is a poison you sell to young men. Hence, that's why mostly young men are involved in this latest dust-up of this idea of self-government alone. Never works. Always ends in utter tragedy. Lawlessness, licentiousness, and tragedy. Always read history. The idea that man is basically good is a poison you sell to young men. And that is why mostly young men entertain and embrace this nonsense. Because they are still young and they still have a high view of themselves. And a man generally. But by the time any man reaches the age of 40, he sees that the mantra, man is basically good, is utter nonsense. Why? Because he has had time to see how depraved he is. And to watch his fellow man and see how depraved they are. And he comes to the conclusion that man is depraved. That the testimony of Scripture is true. That the mantra, this filthy evil culture in which we reside, sells, man is basically good, believe in yourself, I believe in you, is all utter nonsense, complete idiocy, a massive absurdity. So understand, When I speak of self-government, I am not peddling this nonsense running rampant in some circles of Christianity today, which espouse this idea that self-government is the ultimate and only government. And understand also that this thinking can seem appealing to some, because we live in an age of utter lawlessness, where there is a complete breakdown and massive abuses taking place in all three of the other great governments, family, church, and civil. Listen, listen, whenever one of the three great governments break down and become abusive, the people look to one or more of the other governments to correct the evil. In our current situation, all three of the great governments have broken down and are abusive. So this thinking self-government alone can seem appealing. But if we bite on that, we will learn what men have learned down through the history of man, that that too always ends in utter ruin. It is the testimony of history as man has tried such nonsense over and over again in the past. And I could cite many examples. Even the Reformation saw such nonsense. 
The peasant revolts were steeped in the heralding of self-government and the exclusion of civil government and the exclusion of church government. They even saw the corruption of family government in some circles amongst them, with couples sharing one another and polygamy and everything else going on. Nothing new under the sun. The peasant revolt, steeped in heralding self-government, they created chaos, anarchy, and licentiousness. Even Luther addressed the every man must govern himself to the exclusion of the other government's mantra of his day. Luther wrote of this. And he stated, no one is by nature Christian or righteous. And among thousands of professed Christians, there is scarcely a true Christian to be found. In other words, what he was saying is, the nature of man teaches us that man, whether non-Christian or Christian, needs the three great governments. Or there will be absolute anarchy, chaos, and lawlessness. And it doesn't matter if it's a Christian or a non-Christian. doesn't matter if it's a non-Christian or a Christian. Man is what he is. And he needs these governments in order to maintain order. And those governments were designed by God to point men to Christ. All three of those great governments were designed to point the individual to Christ. Rarely do any of them do it now. The civil government's doing everything it can to point people away from Christ. Church government has hoard itself out as a prostitute to affirm the civil magistrates in their evil. In most family governments, there isn't even a family. There's just a hologram left. There's no government there whatsoever. The nature of man teaches us, yes, The other three governments are needed and necessary for the governance of man and the earth, and all three have been established by God himself. So the other three great governments must be repaired and reformed, rebuked and called to repentance, and shown what proper governance is. Not to just shout at the darkness as some in American Christianity are wont to do, sizing all the evil up to fit in their unbiblical eschatological schemes, but to make known what proper governance is through word and to demonstrate what proper governance is through deed. That's what Christian men and women do, or what they should do. But there's little of in our nation today. When I speak of self-government, I am speaking in part to the fact that God's word speaks to every area of life and to every area of a man's life. In other words, his rule consumes all of each man and all of man's doings. This is true whether the man is a Christian or a rebel. Even when an individual lives contrary to God's law and word, there are consequences for his actions. This is because even in their rebellion against God, his rule consumes their lives. They destroy themselves precisely because of his rule over them, and they're acting contrary to his rule and created order. No one escapes his rule. No one, Christian or non-Christian. So again, 
When I speak of self-government, I am speaking in part to the fact that God's word speaks to every area of life and to every area of a man's life. His rule consumes all of each man and all of man's doings. As Christian men, we should desire this. We should desire his rule to invade every area of life, as the faithful scholar and churchman John Machen said a hundred years ago. Here's what Machen said. He said, the field of Christianity is the world. The Christian cannot be satisfied so long as any human activity is either opposed to Christianity or out of all connection with Christianity. Christianity must pervade not merely all nations, but also all of human thought. The Christian cannot therefore be indifferent to any branch of earnest human endeavor. The church must seek to conquer not merely every man for Christ, but also the whole of man. Unquote. So we should desire to see his rule invade every area of life, and we should desire to see his rule invade every area of our lives. The most important aspect of the self-government, what solidifies and produces within the individual self-government, is that the individual understands God is watching. So simple, yet so profound. The number one impetus of self-government the impact that the Reformation had and its impetus upon self-government was the fact that the individual understands God is watching. Even when no one else is, He's watching me. And that the individual loves God. And as Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is the impetus for self-government. We love God and we know He is watching us, even when others aren't. A popular saying attributed to William Penn, but which has no true documentation, I know, I searched. Nevertheless, it's a great saying attributed to William Penn is this. If men will not be governed by God, he will be ruled by tyrants. And this is true. When men become lawless and licentious, it leads to statism. It is a historical fact that atheistic societies most always lead to statist societies. This is because religion is inescapable to man. If he rejects his creator, man replaces him with someone or something, often with the state. It also leads to making himself God man making himself God, and hedonism. The Reformation pointed men to God. It showed each man his need for Christ and honored the Lord in the public realm. The Reformation heralded the individual. And I want to mention just three important aspects of how it did that. The first is a key doctrine or hallmark of Protestantism is known as the priesthood of all believers. And even Merriam-Webster in our current age rightly defines the doctrine as, quote, a doctrine of the Protestant Christian church. Every individual 
has direct access to God through Christ without ecclesiastical mediation, and each individual shares the responsibility of ministering to the other members of the community of believers. That is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. We don't have to wait for some Roman Catholic priest to give us access to God. We all have access to God. All of us do. And the premier passage that the Reformers pointed to was 1 Peter 2, our text, verses 5 through 9, and many more passages. Here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, we see that it is through Christ that we are accepted of God. It is through Christ that we are part of a royal priesthood. We don't have to wait for a priest to enter into God's presence. We can enter into his presence ourselves without anyone or anything else. God desires his fellowship with each of us. And yet most people spend very little time accessing him and spending time worshiping him and petitioning him. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. A verse often quoted here at Mercy Seat, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, regarding this matter of the priesthood of all believers. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Okay? He's letting these Hebrew believers know you can enter the presence of God yourself. In the Old Testament, it was only for the high priest to do or the priests to do. Now everyone gets to enter into his presence. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. People didn't just get to go past this veil. It was such a trepidatious thing to enter into God's presence that the priest actually had a rope tied to his ankle, and if he did something wrong... He would fall over dead and they'd have to drag his carcass out with the rope. You know God wanted to meet with all men at the beginning. Remember that? He met with all the children of Israel at the mount. And what did they do? They said, oh, we didn't like that experience, Moses. You go meet with God. Tell us what he said. We don't want to meet with him anymore. And I tell you, man has been like that in memoriam. I've met so many people. They love the whole idea of a Roman Catholic priest standing in between. They love the idea of you as a a Christian. Will you pray for me? Will you? Yeah, they want to use somebody in between them and God, right? In between them and God. Talk about unbelievers, you know, something bad happens. They want you to pray for them because they know you love God. This veil was rent in two the day Christ died. From the top to the bottom, the rabbis taught us that it was 60 feet tall, a hand's breadth thick. You could put 200 yoke of oxen on either end, drive them in opposite directions, and it would not tear. So no one came in with a stepladder and hedge clippers and cut the veil in two. God rented in two, showing we all have access to him through Christ. This is the priesthood of all believers. We do not need someone other than Christ to meet with the Father. 
Understand that as the verse goes on. And having a high priest over the house of God, who would that be? Jesus. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our consciences sprinkled. The priest would go before the veil, dip his fingers in the bowl of blood and sprinkle it against the veil before he would enter. We enter into God's presence through the finished work of Jesus Christ because the blood which he shed when he died at Calvary, we now have access to the Father. That's huge. Massively huge. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then look what it says. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We all have access to the Father now. We can all meet with him. This is the priesthood of all believers. Another huge element to which the Reformation heralded self-government was the importance placed upon the mind. The Scriptures teach us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen? We are to love God with all of our mind. When you study Reformation history, you notice that laymen began to study for themselves. They would dig deep into theology and history themselves. There was an explosion of pamphlets and books. Studying, reading, investigating are all hallmarks of true self-government. This was part of the reason why the watchword in the Truella home was and is self-government. Ask any of my children, what's our watchword? Self-government. You should study, you should read, you should investigate, you should think. These things are needed if one is going to govern themselves properly. These things are lacking amongst our culture at large these days and lacking among Christian men and women. Rather than gather to do nonsense, gather to think together, to read together, to study together, to debate one another. God didn't give us children to make them into little dependents on us. Me and Clara realized that, thankfully, as a young couple. God didn't give us children to make them into little dependents on us, but for us to govern them properly so that they could become independent in and of themselves. And yet, not in just some lawless, me, myself, and I fashion, but to be a blessing to the kingdom of God at large and to their families. Huge. They are to mature and demonstrate self-government. This is why Chuela's bristle at being owned by others, others who want to make them dependence on them, whether it be a rich man who wants to do it or it be the state. True self-government, our lives 
lived in fealty to Christ, that's what true self-government is, our lives lived in fealty to Christ is what demands us to denounce and defy laws and public policies that impugn God's law and word. A Christian understands God has his place and that God has established these four governments with their own role, functions, and limits. And this brings me to the third part of what I want to point out, and I've already touched on it, what is true self-government? And the Reformation defined what true self-government is. And as I said, it means our lives lived in fealty to Christ. That's true self-government. Our lives lived in fealty to Christ. When you possess true self-government, in other words, you have placed yourself under the rule of Christ. That's what true self-government is. You have placed yourself under his rule, under the rule of God's law and word. When you do that, men will find it difficult to bully you. Men will find it difficult to manipulate you. Men will find it difficult to control you. Men will find it difficult to own you. You will establish strong convictions. They will be founded upon your love for the Lord and hence your hatred for evil. You will found these convictions upon your despisement of idolatry and you will abhor spiritual coercion. Self-government demands taking on responsibility. Nowadays, self-government means to most people, I get to practice whatever lazy, licentious lifestyle I desire. True self-government is seen when the individual bows his knee to Christ and allows every area of his life to be subject to his rule and desires to see his rule demonstrated in all areas of life in the earth. As Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ taught us to pray that. Most Christians don't believe it. I hear conservatives all the time. I was like, and Christians use the same mantra as the conservatives. Oh, the Taliban. They want their Islamic faith to impact every area of life. Like that's a bad thing? And I'm thinking to myself the whole time, why don't Christians think like that? Because they've been taught by a bunch of harlots who fill pulpits to think otherwise. That's why. Many want to create mere moose clubs and social clubs. And they run them as such. And it sickens me to the core. And to see the end of my days coming and to see where we're at sickens me even more. Let me close by saying, even if all the other governments collapse around us, Family, church, civil. This is the one government we can most fully govern. Self-government. But even then, understand, we are all impacted and influenced by the cultures which we live in. It's like, 
I bristle at the arrogance of young men who think they're so much better than the men who went before them. They didn't have this right, so I repudiate everything that they said. You're a pompous ass to talk or think like that. You're still so young and stupid, you think that man is basically good. We all learn in our lifetime. We all learn if we read and study from other generations, and there is no perfect generation, and neither is yours. The arrogance I see of young churchmen and even non-churchmen who are young, sickens me to the core at times of this arrogance that they display repeatedly. He didn't have this right, so I repudiate everything he said. So in other words, you think you have it all right. That's how arrogant you are. You know who does that type of thing? Marxist dogs. Christ-hating pigs. And now you see Christian doing it. Can you tell I'm bothered by it? Because it's a great evil. And it's rampant in American Christianity. You can learn from those who went before us. Many good things. And it's because we've eschewed it all like the Marxists of old. Marxists want us to, right? like the dopes who rule this culture and educate 95% of the children in it, want us to think, you're the best, you're the biggest. All the previous people, they were messed up. You're the enlightened ones. You got it going on. It's disturbing to watch. And you've taken the bait. The scriptures teach something radically different about having honor for the gray head. Maybe they learned something you haven't learned. Even if all the other governments collapse around us, family, church, civil, this is the one government we can most fully govern. Self-government. But even then, understand we are all impacted and influenced by the cultures which we live in. This limits our perceptions and influences our worldview. We must bathe in his word and stay faithful to him in our lives during these dark and perverse days. May Christ be praised. Stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah, God. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this time that we had here to consider the impact that the Reformation had upon self-government. And Lord, I ask and pray that you would use what was set forth here today for good in the hearts and minds of each one, that they would see the importance of these governments which you have established in the earth. They see the importance of the things I've spoken of here, O oh God, regarding generations who have gone before them. Lord, I ask and pray that you would do a great work in each of our hearts and minds, that we would stay faithful and true to you. Our love for you, 
is what gives us the teeth to stand against evil, to do what's right in the midst of a culture that's trying to say that evil is good. Lord, I just ask and pray that you would help us in our homes to be faithful to you. May we be your peculiar people in the earth, that royal priesthood, that holy nation. Be glorified, O God, through each one's life here, I pray. And keep us hungry for you, utterly broken before you, desirous of you, clothed in humility, burdened by the ill and evil of the day that we see, O God. May we see that we can bring good news to a rebellious and dying people. May we not hide this light under a bushel, but may we put it on a candlestick where all can see both in the words that we speak and the lives which we live. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Praise his name. You could be seated. And we are going to take communion this week here at Mercy Seat. And you can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take communion, as the Lord's table is only for believers to observe. And we do observe his table every week at Mercy Seat. It's the pattern laid out by the early church, and we follow in that pattern. We also do it because we need to be reminded of this great salvation, because man in all his religiosity and arrogance thinks that he obtains right standing with God through his own effort. And even after we become Christians, we can think, it's Jesus, yeah, but it's me too. Is Jesus plus my good works. And this time at his table reminds us that is not true. That is not true. That is not right. Because there's only two elements at his table. The fruit of the vine representing his shed blood and the bread representing his body. There's nothing else at his table. Showing the sole means whereby God will meet with us is through Christ alone. Christ plus nothing. Christ period. Amen. The good works that we do the holy living that we demonstrate, those things are the result of our saving faith in Christ. The result are the evidence of our saving faith in Christ. In other words, we do those things because we have obtained his acceptance, not to try and obtain his acceptance. Understand that? There was a whole reformation over precisely that point. That's how huge understanding that is to the individual. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, the apostle says, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Amen? Christ's work at Calvary is the sole means whereby God will accept us. We call what Jesus did there the finished work of Christ. And we call it the finished work of Christ because right before he died, Christ declared, it is finished. What needed to be done to procure for us right standing with the Father was done through Jesus. 
We should have been put to death for our sins. He died in our place so that if we will believe in him, God will forgive us of our sins and we will know God. We will have acceptance of him. We will experience his presence. And this time at his table reminds us of all this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great salvation you have provided us with. We thank you that you've redeemed us. We pray that if any sits amongst us who does not know you, that your Holy Spirit will work upon them, that they be radically regenerated by the power of your Holy Spirit. Forever different, tasting your holiness, tasting your love. And Lord, we thank you what you've done for us. And we ask and pray that we would be your faithful servants in the earth, your ambassadors, that we would give testimony, your witnesses here in the earth. Lord, use each one here, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit to point others to you and deepen each one's desire to seek you and to know you, to love the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Praise His holy name. Let's stand up and we'll worship Him. And now I'll close in prayer. Praise and honor unto You, O God. Give thanks to You, Lord. Blessed is Your holy name. They stand in Your temple and cry day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Lord, we join with them. Here on earth, we join with them in your throne room and we worship you and we give thanks to you and we praise you. Lord, build your kingdom in our lives. Use us for your purposes in the earth. Make our lives count and have meaning, not to just shuffle through here with some little religious stuff tatted on to the end of our lives, but Lord, may we be consumed with your rule. May we desire it in every area of our life and every area of life, I pray, O God. Be glorified in the midst of us and through us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.